My name is Stuart Merrill, and I woke up this day. Episode 12, Generation Miracle. Recently, I was asked to give an address to some middle school students in Oregon City about the importance of embracing diversity. I wanted to share with them some of our nation's history of discrimination and violence, and my own personal experiences as the victim the focus of America's hatred, discrimination, and violence. How my community, the LGBTQ plus community, watched hate speech turn into hate crimes against us and against other ethnic, racial, and religious minorities in the United States. As I started writing, it occurred to me, it was kind of my mission statement, my raison d'etre in these my golden years, and yeah, I'm 62, so I get to say golden years now. Admittedly, it's a bit of a utopian view of our society's youth. But what can I say? I'm an optimist, and I really believe in these kids. This coming generation is amazing. They truly are the miracle many of us devoted our lives to create. I've been asked to come speak with you today about the importance of embracing diversity, the high cost of hatred, how violence is always the inevitable outcome of hate speech, and how my community, the LGBTQ plus community, as well as other ethnic, racial, and religious minorities have historically always paid the price for other people's hatred, bigotry, and intolerance. I also wanted to discuss what it was like to be the victim, the focus of America's hatred, in the form of anti-gay discrimination, violence, witch hunts, bullying, hazing, being fired from so many jobs I couldn't even begin to count them. But most importantly, I want to tell you about a miracle. A miracle that is under threat, and a miracle that I need your help to protect. But first, I thought it might be fun to talk about the elephant in the room. My purple beard. I know some of you are curious and you want to ask, so let me just tell you. You see, as I get older, more and more people seem to think I look like a white supremacist. Maybe it's my blue eyes, my white skin, my white hair, my white beard, but it happens all the time. Seriously, I'm not kidding. It happens all the time. Let me give you a couple of examples, and this has happened several times. I'm in a waiting room or standing with a group of people when the nice young trans lady or the last minority leaves and the guy next to me whispers an anti-trans or racist joke in my ear. Why do they always tell me? Why do they think I'm the guy who's going to be okay with their hatred? Or a couple of months ago, I'm at my gym wearing my favorite workout shirt, which happens to have a German flag on it, and some lady goes to the front desk and asks them to kick me out because she said I was a neo-Nazi. Now, in all fairness, they kind of have a point, though. I mean, if you were to Google the image of a white supremacist, this is pretty much what you're going to see, minus the purple beard, of course. But considering I've quite literally devoted my entire life to fighting misogyny, bigotry, racism, homophobia, transphobia, anti-Semitism, having people think I look like a white supremacist is not only confusing, it's extremely upsetting for me. For gay pride last year, I decided to dye my beard purple, and voila, I discovered the solution. Now, when people with white supremacist leanings look at me, they tend to give me that sour milk look, and I think you know the look I'm talking about. The cool kids, well, they give me compliments. I've never gotten more compliments on anything in my life than on this purple beard. I love it. I love the attention, and it's a very effective social filter. 
for the cool kids who pass the test. Recently in America, there's been a very alarming increase of hate speech against the LGBTQ plus community, and, well, frankly, against all marginalized communities in the United States. This hate speech started in state legislatures, on conservative news outlets, then began to be heard in school boards and spread to school hallways, and pretty soon we started hearing more and more of this hate speech on the streets of our country. Those of us who have been the victims of anti-LGBTQ plus discrimination and violence in the past knew what was coming next. As it always has and as it always will, this anti-LGBTQ plus hate speech became violence against innocent members of our community. Only a few weeks after the first hate speech was heard on conservative news channels, some guy went into a gay bar in Colorado Springs during a drag show, pulled out a couple guns, and started murdering innocent members of our community and our allies. More recently in New York City, a handsome young black man, who was also a very talented professional dancer named O'Shea Sibley, was stabbed to death by young men who were yelling homophobic and racist slurs at him. And his crime? He was dancing, voguing in the streets with his friends, but his murderer thought his voguing was too gay. It's not just happening to my community, though. The same thing has been happening to religious, ethnic, and racial minorities all over the country. First came more hate speech on TV, and then the hate speech spread to the streets, and suddenly there's more violence against Asians, blacks, Muslims, Jews. The list of victims goes on and on, and the cycle of violence increases every day. But here's the catch. Those people spewing hatred, and those people on the street calling some kid a faggot, they don't pay the price of their hatred. We do. America's marginalized community, like the LGBTQ plus community, we pay the price of other people's hatred. My generation of gay men, and especially today's trans and non-binary communities, paid and are still paying the price of other people's hatred, bigotry, and intolerance. The most effective way to fight this hate speech and violence is to remind people just how horrible it was the last time America went down this road. People need to be reminded how cruel, terrifying, and heartbreaking those times were for those of us who were the victims, the focus of America's hatred. Oftentimes people don't realize, and many of them may never realize, that jokingly calling someone a faggot or making fun of their race or religion is not only hurtful hate speech, but historically it always leads to more violence. So imagine one day you're just waiting for the bell to ring so you can hang out with your friends, or maybe you're making fun of some old fag standing up or talking about diversity, or you just call one of your buddies a faggot in the halls, in the locker room, in the football field, wherever. It's just a joke, right? I mean, he's your friend. You don't actually want anyone to hurt him. It's just a joke. It's not the same thing as actually hitting him, right? When you jokingly call someone a faggot, or make fun of someone who's trans or non-binary, make fun of their race or religion, even if you don't mean that person physical harm, there could very well be someone listening who does mean them harm, and will hear this hate speech as an encouragement to harm them or someone like them. There will always be one or two people who are encouraged to commit violence when they hear these harmless jokes, because they're not harmless jokes. 
They're hate speech. And it only takes one person to pick up a gun, a baseball bat, or a two-by-four. And pretty soon, our society is right back where it was when I was your age. Have you guys ever heard of the butterfly effect? It's a theory that says the gentle flap of an itsy-bitsy butterfly's wing can theoretically be the first step in a chain of events leading to a hurricane that kills people. They're not saying that every time a butterfly flaps its wing, somebody's going to die. What they're saying is that if there are enough small events disturbing the atmosphere, inevitably one of them will become a deadly hurricane that kills people. Now, looking out at all your happy young faces today, I don't see a bunch of violent racists or homophobes. What I see when I look at you is a miracle. You were raised in a society and in a time where the vast majority of us really don't care if someone is trans, gay, or straight, what god they believe in, if they have brown eyes or blue, what country they come from, what color their skin is, or even what color my beard is, because to most of us, these are total non-issues. To me, that's a miracle. You are a beautiful miracle that I never thought I would live long enough to see. It hasn't always been like this. That's certainly not what it was like when I was your age. It is my life's work, my mission for whatever time I have left to make sure none of you ever experience what it was like to be gay when I was your age. Can I have a show of hands? How many of you are 12 years old? When I was 12 years old, my parents divorced, my father lost his business, and we lost our home. I grew up in a very conservative, very religious community in Utah. At the age of 12, my older brother, who was seven years older and the social and athletic star of our local high school, was commanded by our community's religious leader to fulfill his spiritual duty by beating the queer out of me. The first time it happened, he broke two of my ribs, and when my mother tried to defend me, he threw her against the wall so hard it broke one of her ribs. My mother kicked him out of the house, but that same religious leader informed my mother that if she wanted the church to continue paying her bills while she went back to school so she could better support us, she would let the beating continue. If she did not, she and her children would be homeless. For the rest of my childhood, the soundtrack of my childhood became the sound of my mother crying herself to sleep because she couldn't protect me. Now, I pray with all my heart that there is no one in this room who will ever know what it feels like to be a terrified, insecure, lonely child with nowhere safe to go and no one to protect me. If there's anyone here who knows what that feels like, please don't make the same mistake I did. Go tell someone you trust. Tell your teacher. Tell a counselor. Tell a policeman. Tell anyone. And if that person doesn't help you, then tell someone else. And keep telling people till you find someone who will make it stop. Because there is never a valid reason to hurt a child. Never. I just pray none of you will ever know what that feels like. Or the impact it had on my entire life. Being the victim of child abuse because I was a femmy little queer convinced me at a very early age that I just didn't matter that much. My pain, my feelings, my fears, my dreams, my goals, none of them mattered as much as those of the normal people because, well, I was just a little faggot and I was less than those normal people. 
I honestly spent my whole life believing that what happened to me didn't matter as much because little queers like me were less than normal people. But every time my brother beat me, I made a solemn promise to myself that if I could just survive, I would grow up and devote my life to making this world a better place for kids like me. Growing up in Utah in the 1960s and 70s, there were no gay role models for me to follow. There was no one I could look up to for guidance. But I finally found some role models and the inspiration I needed to survive watching the evening news on TV. Every night, as a family, we watched the news, and I saw what was happening in the civil rights movement. I found my inspiration and the will I needed to survive watching brilliant heroes like the Reverend Martin Luther King. I watched the march on Washington, and I saw the senseless beating of peaceful black demonstrators and their allies in Selma, Alabama. One of the young men who was brutally beaten in Selma, Alabama that day would himself go on to be a great civil rights icon and hero, the late great congressman John Lewis. John Lewis called this good trouble. They were fighting the good fight. They were fighting on the side of the angels. Even at that young age, I could see that the civil rights movement was changing America. The civil rights movement and this good trouble was helping America fulfill its destiny of equality for all in America. On some level, I must have realized that's what needed to be done for me and my community, the LGBTQ plus community, and I needed to be a part of that movement. One of the things that I admire most about the African-American community, the civil rights movement, and especially the Jewish community and how they handled the Holocaust, is that both of these communities understand the importance of making people remember, never letting them forget the horrific things that were done to them. The reason African-American and Jewish communities continually remind us of the horrific tragedies they were forced to endure is not to gain our sympathy or attention but because they understand better than most that it is the single best way to prevent these atrocities from ever happening to anyone else ever again. They understand that it's human nature to try to forget the bad things that happen in our lives. It's a sort of survival mechanism. But African American and Jewish communities fight the instinct to forget hardship, and it is a noble act of grace that they continue to remind us of our society's history of discrimination and violence. I don't want to remember the horrible tragedies I survived, nor do I want to remember that the vast majority of my friends did not survive. I don't want to remember having my face, clothes, and hair covered in the spit of some high school football team while they called me a faggot. I don't want to remember when I was working in Moscow, Russia, and my boyfriend was disappeared. He was arrested for being a homosexual, probably tortured, and ordered to name names of other sexual deviants, and then they murdered him. I have no idea where they buried his body, or even if they buried him, and I will probably never know. I don't want to remember hiding behind a dumpster in some back alley, praying that my friends also found somewhere safe to hide from that horrible mob of gay bashers chasing us with baseball bats. I don't want to remember that for generations in this country, fag bashing was a socially acceptable form of Saturday night entertainment and nobody cared when fags were murdered. I don't want to remember watching fag bashers beat an innocent young man to death with two-by-fours in New York City, knowing that if I had tried to help him, they would have killed me too. 
I don't want to remember how the armed policeman standing right next to me refused to stop it. He refused to even take my witness statement. And I wish I could forget the sound of that young man's head exploding when hit by a two-by-four. I would give anything to somehow forget what that sounds like. How do we make people understand what it feels like to know that the police we paid for with our taxes were not there to protect us? And let's be honest, in those days, oftentimes the people beating us, robbing us, and yes, even murdering us, were the police. Now, I want to stop here for a moment and point out that this has changed in most of America. Most police forces have completely turned that around, and that's a very difficult thing to do, and they deserve our respect for it. Most police forces no longer tolerate homophobes or racists. Undoubtedly, there are still some racist and homophobic cops out there, but thank God now they're the exception and no longer the norm. The biggest tragedy of my life, though, was AIDS. Not just how AIDS killed the vast majority of my friends before I was 30, but how America treated us while we were dying. While I and every other gay man I know was going to two or three funerals a week, every week, for over 15 years, most Americans just pretended not to notice, and on the rare occasion they did mention AIDS, it was usually to make fun of us. My own brother and our own president loved to joke how fags got what we deserved when we died of AIDS, and isn't that funny? For the first six grueling years of the AIDS crisis, our president and our government did absolutely nothing to combat AIDS. Not one single dollar was spent for research or a cure. The president wouldn't even say the word AIDS in public until the first straight person was diagnosed with HIV. Three days later, he declared AIDS a national emergency and poured tens of millions of dollars into finding a cure. There was a magnificent woman named Dr. Matilda Krim who just happened to be married to one of our president's best friends and one of Hollywood's most powerful film moguls, the producer Arthur B. Krim. During the first six months of the AIDS crisis, Dr. Krim told her good friend President Reagan that he urgently needed to fund research into the mysterious disease killing the gay community. She warned the president that if this epidemic was not addressed right away while it was still in its early stages and isolated to the gay community, it would inevitably become a pandemic that would spread to the straight community and kill tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of people, mostly straight people. At that point, 4,661 AIDS cases and 2,085 AIDS-related deaths had been recorded in America. Today, there are over 80 million people who have been diagnosed with HIV-AIDS. The vast majority are straight, and half are dead. That's 40 million individual lives lost. Let me put that into perspective for you. That's roughly the entire population of Oregon dying every year for 10 years. The only thing Dr. Krim got wrong when she warned Ronald Reagan was the number of zeros in her estimates of how many people would die if he continued to ignore AIDS. It wasn't tens or hundreds of thousands. It was 40 million people. 40 million individual lives lost. That number would be a fraction of what it is today. Tens of millions of lives would have been saved 
If the American people, the American government, and the American president hadn't intentionally ignored AIDS for those first six crucial, horrific years. And why did the American president, the American government, and the American people, for the most part, choose to ignore AIDS? Because AIDS was just killing faggots, and back then nobody cared when fags died, because fags got what we deserved when we died of AIDS. And isn't that funny? To me, it is nothing short of a miracle that the vast majority of Americans no longer think this way. So please, remember, just keep it in the back of your mind somewhere. The next time you want to jokingly call somebody a faggot, or make fun of someone who is trans or non-binary, or tease somebody about their race or religion, just remember, never forget the high cost of hatred. Right now, the rights inequality my generation fought and died for are under threat. Look what's happening right now to our trans community. We can't just stand by and do nothing while America slides back into its terrifying, hateful, violent, racist, transphobic, homophobic past. For over 15 years, sometimes two or three times a week, I would go to the hospital and I'd say goodbye to my dying friends. I held their hands, I told them I loved them, and I said goodbye over and over and over again for over 15 years. That's longer than most of you have been alive. They always made me promise the same thing, though. Every time they made me promise I would live a full life for them and for me. And they always made me promise I would never stop fighting for our rights and fighting for equality for all in America. Help me keep that promise. Help me win that fight. It's up to you guys now. It's up to your generation. But you know what? You guys are amazing, and I know you can and will help America reach its destiny of equality for all and for always in America. Just remember, never forget the high cost of hatred. If we forget, if we do not remember, history will repeat itself yet again. I would be remiss if I didn't also point out that people who use hate speech and make fun of those who are different are revealing something not very flattering about themselves. They are exhibiting their own insecurity about themselves and their place in our society. Bigotry, homophobia, transphobia, and racism towards those who are different comes from a place of insecurity and fear. People who are comfortable in their own skin, confident of their place in society, have no fear of those who are different. Quite the contrary. Those of us who are self-confident and comfortable with who we are tend to be curious about those who are different. We don't fear them. We're eager to meet them and learn more about them. The late great hero of the LGBTQ plus equality movement, Harvey Milk, taught us to peacefully and respectfully reach out to those who fear us, or even hate us. Befriend them. Show them we're just people in pursuit of happiness, like everybody else. He taught us to reach out to them with kindness, confidence, and respect, and show them there is no reason to fear us and absolutely no need to hate us. Embracing diversity is not only the right thing to do, it makes us a better, stronger, more dynamic people when we do embrace diversity. 
I was very fortunate to have a wonderful mentor when I worked in the news industry. His name was Lance Primus, and he was the president of the New York Times Group. He and I had very different political views, and maybe that's why his ideas on diversity had such an impact on me. Once a month, Lance took me to lunch, and we discussed my career. At one of these lunches, I asked Lance why his company was so diverse considering his politically conservative views. He just laughed and said diversity is one of the things on the checklist that liberals have to check off to prove that they're good liberals. But very few people understand the true power of diversity. He went on to explain the reason that he hired gays, blacks, Muslims, and every variety of employee you could possibly imagine was because he understood people from different backgrounds thought differently and had fresh ideas that he could never come up with on his own. He understood the more diverse his employees, the more creative, dynamic, and forward-thinking his company would be. He believed in diversity because diversity made him and his company the best in the business. The same is true of our society. Diversity is not just one of the things that makes us great. Diversity is the thing that can potentially make us the greatest society on earth. Look at the incredible range of diversity right here in this room, in this school. You guys are amazing. You're so much more advanced and self-aware than we were at your age. I see this amazing variety of young people discovering who you are. You're embracing your wonderfully diverse identities with confidence. You're learning to love the person you are meant to be. But most importantly, you must also learn to love and respect each other. I and many in my generation struggled and fought our entire lives to get us here. But we made it. We are here. And you are the proof. You are the miracle. Now it's your turn to defend the magnificent miracle of diversity you are and expand it until we truly have achieved our nation's destiny of equality for all, for everybody, and for always in America. Fifty years ago, the first time my brother beat me, and broke two of my ribs, I swore to myself that if I could just survive, I would give myself a happy life, and I would devote myself to making this world a better place for you and your generation. But now I need your help. Remember when I first started speaking and I told you I was going to ask for your help in defending a miracle? When I was your age, it was beyond my wildest dreams that someday I would live in a diverse society where the vast majority of people, the vast majority of you, couldn't care less if I was trans, gay, or straight, had brown eyes or blue, what god I worship, what country I come from, if my skin was black, white, or brown, or even if I have a purple beard. In this society, in this room, we celebrate our diversity. We no longer hate people because they're different. We celebrate our differences because we understand that diversity is the very thing that makes us great. To me, that is a miracle. You are a miracle. You are the miracle that I and many of my generation devoted our lives to create. Help me defend the beautiful miracle of diversity you are, and remember, never forget the high cost of hatred. If we don't remember, if we forget, history will repeat itself yet again. Please, 
just remember, never forget the high cost of hatred. My name is Stuart Merrill, and I woke up this day. Thank you.